continuing our series through book one of the Psalms. And I mentioned last week that Psalms 1 and 2 are really an introduction together, uh, an introduction for the whole of not only book 1 of the five books of the Psalms, but for all 150 Psalms. Psalms 1 and 2 come first. And uh, a big part of what they do is they establish what is objectively true so that we can interpret our subjective experience through these objective realities. Psalms 1 and 2 come first and paint an ideal picture. They remind us of what is actually true, even if our experience may indicate that something else is true. So last week we looked at Psalm 1, and we saw that there's two paths we can choose. There's the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. And at times, it might seem like the way of the wicked is the path of prosperity, but it is actually the path of perishing. True prosperity is found on the path of the blessed man, Jesus Christ, who delights in the law of the Lord. But where Psalm 1 takes more of a personal, individual perspective in terms of these objective truths that we need to remember. Psalm 2 takes more of a global geopolitical perspective. It will remind us of what is objectively true about the world, even if things don't look that way. So if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? The Holy Spirit says... Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. We planned 
to preach through Psalms months ago. And at that time, only God could have known what the state of the world was going to be like when we got to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? The world has watched in recent days. The world's eyes have been on Ukraine. As we've seen Russia violently invade that country. And it's made all of us, I think, think more globally. We've all been thinking a little bit more geopolitically. We've been thinking about countries and nations and governments and leaders and actors on the world stage. Been asking what the implications are going to be for our country, for the world, for our loved ones in the military. We're all thinking a little bit more globally, a little bit more geopolitically as we see the nation's rage. And I wonder, when you look at the world, what do you see? When you look at nations and countries, when you look at the governments and the leaders, when you look at the actors on the world stage, the the leaders and the influencers, what do you see? What categories do you put the nations in? We can put the nations in a lot of different categories, categories of power or development, the more powerful, the less powerful, the more developed, the less developed. Uh, We can put nations in categories of size or geography. We can put the nations in categories to how they relate to our nation, allies, enemies. You can use moral categories, good countries, bad countries, courageous leaders, evil rulers. When you look at the world, what do you see? Well, Psalm 2 gives us a window into what God sees when he looks at the world. When we read Psalm 2, we get to view the world through God's eyes. And God categorizes the nations, but he does not categorize them based on size or power or geography. He doesn't categorize them based on their relationship to our country or any other country. God categorizes the nations based on their relationship to him and to his son. And the most important political reality from God's perspective is that his king is on his throne. The most important political reality from God's perspective is that his king is on his throne. And if the king is on his throne, everything changes. If the king is on his throne, it should change our lifestyle. If the king is on his throne, it should change our politics. If the king is on his throne, it should change our worldview. 
If the king is on his throne, it should change our hearts. Because if the king is on his throne, everything changes. And we're going to see from Psalm 2 four implications of the truth that the king is on his throne. First, if the king is on his throne, raging against his authority is pointless. If the king is on his throne, raging against his authority is pointless. See this in verses 1 through 3. Psalm 2 begins in verses 1 and 2 with the nations conspiring. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So we see in these first two verses the nations coming together and they're restless. They're worked up. They're grumbling. They're meditating. But they're not meditating on the law of the Lord like the blessed man of Psalm 1. Instead, they're meditating about how to rebel against Yahweh and against his anointed king. Uh, This psalm is written from the perspective of God's anointed king. That word anointed is the word we get our words uh, Messiah and Christ. And the anointed here is a king from the line of David. We can look back at the story and see the prophet Samuel literally anoint David with oil when God chose him to be the king of his holy nation. And God promised David that he would just be the first in a long line of anointed kings who would come from him. God promised David that he would have an offspring on the throne forever. And so, because God promised David an indestructible dynasty of anointed kings, the anointed king sees the nations raging, and he asks with great confidence, why do the nations rage? It's as if he's saying, what good do you think this is going to do? The nations conspire in vain. And the anointed king then hears what their conspiracy is in verse 3. They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the kings of the nations talk like they're oppressed slaves of Yahweh and his anointed wrapped in ropes and shackles. And they want to be set free from the tyranny of having to obey Yahweh. They want to be set free from the rule of God's anointed king. So in the ancient world, there were different relationships of power between nations. There were lord nations and servant nations. And the anointed king looks at the nations of the world raging, and he sees them as servants of Yahweh and his king and his holy nation. And as they rage against the Lord's anointed, they're trying to break free from the lordship of the God of the universe. This is how David, and this is how the kings that came from him were supposed to view the raging of the nations. God's king has total sovereignty, and the nations of the earth were servants of God's holy nation. And to rage against the Lord's anointed king was a pointless attempt to overthrow an absolute authority. If 
The king is on his throne. Raging against his authority is pointless. But the world never actually looked like this for David or his descendants. In fact, by the time all 150 psalms were complete, Israel was not a lord nation. They were a servant nation. First, they were under the rule of the Babylonians, then the Persians, and the Persians let them return to their land, but Israel was still under the Persian Empire's rule as their servants. And by the time Jesus was born, they were under the rule of the Roman Empire. So then, if that's what it looks like on the world, why does the anointed king speak with so much confidence? Well, it's because this psalm was written with the future in view. This was a psalm written with confidence, but it's written with confidence, not self-confidence. It's written with confidence that God would keep his word. It's written in faith that God would fulfill his promise to raise up an offspring of David who would have power over the nations, even if for a time it looks like the nations have power over the Lord's anointed. The people of God might at times even see the kings of the nations seemingly defeat the Lord's anointed. But they could sing this psalm. And they could sing it with confidence. Knowing that in the end, a son of David will always be on the throne. And he will ultimately triumph over the nations. We see this most clearly in the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus was, Jesus is, the Lord's anointed king, the ultimate son of David. And yet, it seemed that he had been defeated. But it wasn't defeat. It was Psalm 2. Acts 4, 25 and 28, the Jerusalem church prays, Sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And catch this, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Even when it looked like the anointed had been dethroned, Yahweh raised him up and exalted him to his right hand in the heavens. Even though for a moment it might look like the kings of the earth have the power the creator of all things is still the sovereign over all. And to rage against God's anointed king is to rebel against your invincible Lord. If the king is on his throne, raging against his authority is pointless. So let me ask you, 
you find God's authority to be oppressive or life-giving? When you read the Bible and you hear what God says to do and not do, when you read the Bible and see what is and isn't a sin, do you see God's commands as restrictive, almost like ropes or chains that have you in bondage? Do you see God's standards as shackles that you want to break free from? Do you see God's law as a barrier to living your best life? Or do you understand the truth of Psalm 1, that the path of flourishing is actually to delight in the law of the Lord? Jesus said in Matthew eleven thirty, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Or as Dane Ortland says, my burden is a non-burden. My yoke is a non-yoke. It is pointless and it is dangerous to rage against the Lord's anointed. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 25, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When you or I try to get out from under the lordship of God's anointed King Jesus, we are joining in the raging of the nations. When you think that you know better than God what is right for you, you are joining in a losing battle. You and I have not found true life until we have given our lives wholesale. To Jesus Christ, the Lord's anointed. If the king is on his throne, raging against his authority is pointless. Second, if the king is on his throne, all nations are accountable to him. If the king is on his throne, all nations are accountable to him. So in the text of Psalm 2, after observing the conspiracy of the nations, the anointed king goes on to observe God's response to the conspiring nations in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God sees the kings of the nations trying to break free from his king. And he laughs. To quote Psalm 1, these earthly rulers sit in the seat of scoffers. But Yahweh sits in heaven and scoffs at those who scoff at him. He goes on in verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. So not only is God laughing at how ridiculous the rebellion of the nations is, he also burns with anger and wrath at their rebellion because God will not give his glory to another. The rebellion of the nations will not go unpunished. And God tells them exactly how he plans to deal with their rebellion in verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Mount Zion was where the temple was built. It was where God manifests his presence on earth with his people. 
It was an extension of God's heavenly throne. And so when God says that his king is on Zion, he's saying his king rules with the authority of the throne of heaven. Psalm 110 verses 1 and 2 says, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. And Paul picks up on this in Ephesians 1 when he says that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God has given his anointed king authority over the nations. And with that authority, the anointed king will judge all kings, all rulers, all nations. Paul said in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is why God laughs. This is why the king's of the earth who rage against the anointed should be terrified because if the king is on his throne, all nations are accountable to him. Do you share God's view of kings and nations? God sees all political leaders and countries as accountable to Jesus. How do you evaluate politicians and nations? You know, Psalm 2, and this goes for all the Bible, but Psalm 2 is not written to enrich a small little subcategory of our life called spirituality. Psalm 2 is written to give us God's perspective on the real world that we live in. God means for us to see Putin, Zelensky, Xi, Biden, Trump, Obama. He means for us to see them the way that God sees them. Our politics shouldn't be separate from our religion. Our politics should flow out of delighting in the law of the Lord. Our politics should start with the truth that Jesus will be the judge of all all kings and all nations. And our political position should come from God's standard of justice revealed in his word. So consider a couple of questions as you consider whether you view nations and leaders with God's eyes. If your favorite politicians read the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek, Lust is adultery. Love your enemies. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Would they see a picture of the blessed life? Or would they scoff? 
If you look at the Bible, and then you look at our nation's political tribes, and if none of them line up with God's standards of justice, God's standards of virtue, are you okay with being politically homeless in our country? Or would you rather compromise on some part of Scripture so that you can be a part of a political tribe? If we are citizens of heaven, we must have no higher allegiance than to King Jesus. We must view the nations of the world, including our nation, from God's perspective. We must view the leaders of nations, including our leaders, from God's perspective. So may we never promote a platform that kindles God's wrath. And may we never praise a politician who God laughs at from heaven. May we never view Jesus through the lens of worldly politics. Instead, may we always view worldly politics from the perspective of heaven. And from the perspective of heaven, the most important political reality is that the king is on his throne. And if the king is on his throne. All nations are accountable to him. Third, if the king is on his throne, he will rule all nations. If the king is on his throne, he will rule all nations. We've heard what God declared to the nations about their conspiracy, but next, the anointed king recounts what God declared to him. In verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So the anointed king tells the nations what Yahweh said to him. He recalls the moment he was anointed as king. And Yahweh bestowed upon him the title of son. Uh, That is a, a significant title in scripture. It's given to the human representative of God on earth. Adam is referred to in scripture as God's son. He was the image of God and God gave him dominion over the earth and told him to subdue it. Israel, the nation of Israel, is referred to as God's son. They were to take dominion and expand the borders of the promised land. But here, the anointed king is ultimately given the title of son of God. And this is what God promised about David's offspring in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. God said, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he, David's offspring, shall be to me a son God promised to bestow upon David's offspring the title of Son of God. And the ultimate Son of God is, of course, Jesus Christ. Paul said in Acts 13, verses 32 and 33, We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. When God resurrected Jesus, he bestowed upon him the title, Son of God. Well, then in verse 8 of Psalm 2, we see God's promise about the kingdom he would give to his son. 
Yahweh says to his son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. God promised his anointed king that he would give him all the nations of the earth as his possession. The son's inheritance would be the entire planet. The borders of the anointed, uh, the anointed king's kingdom would have no end. And this is a fulfillment of a promise Yahweh made to Abraham. In Genesis 22, verses 17 and 18, God told Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God made a promise of an offspring who would have dominion over his enemies and bless all nations of the earth. And this promise is fulfilled in the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God. And we hear more about the dominion that God gave his son over the nations in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The anointed son is given a rod, a scepter with which to rule the nations. And those who do not submit to Yahweh, those who do not submit to his anointed king, will be brought into line. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. John saw exactly what this would look like, and he recorded it. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And look down at verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of lords. If that is the future, why do the nations rage? They conspire, they plot in vain. If the king is on his throne, he will rule all nations. And if that is the future, then why should we fear? When the nations rage. We don't need to fear. When the nations rage. It doesn't mean we won't suffer. Throughout history. God's people have suffered greatly. Due to the raging of the nations. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. Worshipping today. Right now in Ukraine. Who are suffering greatly. Because of the raging of the nations. But Psalm 2 was given to the people of God to remind us how the story ends. In Revelation, in chapter 2, Jesus wrote to the church in Thyatira, the one who conquers 
and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Did you catch that? Yahweh has given the anointed Son authority to rule over the nations, and the anointed Son promised that he will share that authority with his people, his church. If we are the people who belong to the anointed king, no matter what happens, no matter how much the nations may rage, we are on the winning side. We are on the side of victory. If the king is on his throne, then we don't have to fear the nations. Because if the king is on his throne, he will rule all nations. Well, finally, if the king is on his throne, the nations can take refuge in him. Now, if you're looking at the screens, I apologize. I made three slides and not four. And so you're just going to have to hear this one. The nations can take refuge in him. If the king is on his throne, the nations can take refuge in him. So as Psalm 2 concludes in the last three verses, after recording what God declared to the nations about their conspiracy and recording what God declared to his son about his authority, the anointed king ends the psalm with a warning in verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. The anointed king addresses the nations, the kings of the earth, and he says, if Yahweh has given me authority over the whole earth, there is only one wise response. Don't be foolish, kings. Well, what is this wise response that the kings should offer? Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. In this psalm, the kings of the earth think that the pathway to rejoicing is found by getting out from under the lordship of Yahweh. But the anointed king says that is foolishness. The wise response is to find joy in serving Yahweh. The kings of the earth scoff at Yahweh and his law, but the anointed king says that is foolishness. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as the son of David said in Proverbs 9.10. The nations must honor God and submit to his son. And the anointed king ends with a final invitation in verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The anointed king gives the nations a choice. Pay tribute to God's son or endure his wrath. But the king's invitation is not to come to him as an oppressed and dominated slave. His invitation is to come to him for refuge. He says, you think that in order to flourish, 
you need to point your weapons at God's Son. But if you really want to flourish, you need to come find protection behind the Son's shield. Here's what is amazing about Psalm 2. The king, the king who will break nations with the rod of iron, the king who will dash rebels like a potter's vessel, whose wrath is quickly kindled, is the king who offers refuge. The king who offers refuge from his wrath in himself. If the king is on his throne, the nations can take refuge in him because the king on his throne was first a king on a cross. And the nations conspired together to crucify him. And as they raged, Yahweh poured out his wrath on his only begotten son. The wrath that the nations deserve. And that king on the cross became the king on his throne because God raised him up and seated him at his right hand. And according to Acts 5.31, God exalted him to his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Because the king is on his throne, the nations can repent. Because the king is on his throne, the nations can have forgiveness of their sins. And because the king is on his throne, heaven sings a new song in Revelation 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom. And priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Because the king is on his throne, all nations can take refuge in him. Ultimately, there are only two ways that you can respond to God's anointed king. You can rage against him, or you can take refuge in him. Have you found refuge in God's Son? If you realize that you've rebelled against King Jesus, you've broken his law, you've defied his authority, do not run away from him in fear. Run to him for refuge. Turn from sin and turn to Jesus. Trust him to forgive you of your sin and bow to him as your Lord. If you have found refuge in God's son, do you realize that the same king who invited us to take refuge in him now invites us to extend that invitation to the nations, the invitation for refuge. 
What did Jesus say in Matthew 28, 18 to 19? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. When we realize that the anointed king has absolute authority, our appropriate response is to make disciples. We go to the raging nations across the street and across the globe, and we tell them the good news of Psalm 2. Do you know what the good news of Psalm 2 is? It's this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him the world raged and God loved God's only begotten son was given as a substitute for the raging nations. The anointed king who will judge the world came first to save the world. And he calls us to go tell the nations who deserve to perish in the way that they can instead have eternal life if they find refuge in the Son. If the king is on his throne, all nations can take refuge in him. If the king is on his throne, everything changes. Everything changes. If the king is on his throne, it should change our lifestyle because raging against his authority is pointless. If the king is on his throne, it should change our politics because all nations are accountable to him. If the king is on his throne, it should change our worldview because he will rule all nations. And if the king is on his throne, it should change our hearts because the nations can take refuge in him. So may we look at the world from God's perspective. May we never forget that he has put his king on his throne. We gather here today anticipating, longing for the day that our king returns. We look forward to the day that we can say the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And on that day, the church, the bride of Christ, will join her bridegroom for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And as we anticipate that day, the Lord has given us a meal to observe in the meantime. Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29, records Jesus' last supper with his disciples. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This sacred time of the Lord's table is for believers who have rested all their hope on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you're not yet a believer, we would ask that you refrain from partaking until you come to faith in Christ and then joyfully partake along with the body of Christ. I encourage you who are believers to examine your hearts so that we may partake in a worthy manner. If your heart is harboring unrepentant sin, uh, refrain until you can come freely to partake. But if you are a member of the body of Christ, Jesus invites you to come to his table. Uh, this is a meal not just for our local body, but for the global body of Christ. So if you're a baptized member of a gospel-preaching church in good standing, we welcome you to partake of this table. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and uh, we'll sing a song. And during that time, as you're ready, you can come and receive the elements. Uh, we would ask that you take them back to your seat and hold on to them so that once the song's over, we can all partake together. Let's pray together. Father, as the nations gathered together to crucify your anointed king, you poured out the cup of your wrath on your only begotten son so that we could find refuge in him and not perish, but have eternal life. As we eat and drink, may we remember the sacrifice of our King. May we experience his presence in a fresh way. And may we have greater confidence in the Lamb who sits on the throne. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.